0: Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. Um, this episode, we decided that with a lot of things that are going on in the news that we would go back and touch on the subject of suicide again. We did a part one a few weeks ago, and we'd like to call this um, episode about suicide, and it'll be a part two version. And there's been a lot of things In the news lately, and just to to go back and bring up what we touched on in part one, we talked about the complex issues, number of statistics, the growing number of cases, no common component. It's hard to decipher why. And then talked in depth about the iceberg analogy. I shared a personal story, Marshall did. So one of the things that is Often been upfront for me. And I don't I don't understand suicide as well as Marshall does. He's right a lot more than I have. But it's the consequences not only to the people who are injured or die from their attempt, it also affects the rest of the family and the community. And that can be through shock, anger, guilt, and depression. On the last episode, we we talked about the fact that they would be considered suicide survivors. And then those that actually attempt to suicide and survive may have serious injuries or broken bones, which can have long-term effects on health. Obviously, Marshall, this affects a very large number of people in the U.S. right now. What are your thoughts around dealing with the shock, the anger, the guilt, and the depression
1: as a suicide survivor? Steve, that's an excellent question. And there's so many different facets to suicide that are so incomprehensible. I know you and I have talked both on and off the camera on the show about losing a loved one suddenly versus somebody that has a terminal debilitating long-term disease where you know that the end result is going to be their passing. And there's different dynamics with both and which is worse, and it's hard to tell. With suicide, and it's sort of bittersweet when you said I know more about suicide than you do, unfortunately. I wish I didn't, but I do because that's how Matt passed. And I've just decided that I have to spend the rest of my life Learning as much as I can to not only help me on my journey of grief, but to try to help others that have either lost loved ones through suicide or find some type of medical technology that will eventually help diagnose, treat, and hopefully some take cure whatever the entity is that causes suicide. So it's a real complicated question. And I think I will just tell you, and I'll say a little joke here, which I think you always have to use humor. You know, I'm not a doctor, I don't I don't play one on TV, but I obviously can't give medical advice, but I've talked to literally hundreds of people that have lost loved ones to suicide. And the Every suicide is different, but the overwhelming common factor that I've seen is that the people that have lost love and suicide didn't see it coming. And I've been amazed by how many people that have told me that even when their loved one had previously unsuccessfully attempted suicide where they knew that this person had attempted, didn't succeed, was still alive, but when they actually did this and took their life, they were shocked because I think what happens is if somebody is at the point where they have made the decision to take their life, I've heard so many people And I'll say this with Matt, absolutely. I literally talked to him, it was probably the day before he passed, and he was funny and upbeat and looking forward to the future. Matt was doing his own content with movies, things like that. The day that he passed, we think that he literally launched a new YouTube channel with some of his original content. Oh, wow. And you're saying, why in the world would you launch a new YouTube channel with original content if you're not going to even survive the day? Because again, this is just my personal philosophy. I think that people that have suicidal ideation is a battle that they have to fight every single day. And they know that there will come a day when they're going to lose that battle. Maybe it's today Maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's a week, a month, a year, a decade from now. They don't know. So I think they live their lives the best they can, being as productive as they can for as long as they can until they lose that battle. And I'll just talk about Matt. About a year before Matt passed, there was a very good female friend of Matt's that passed by suicide. And I think, again, just trying to put this all together, I think Matt was in love with her. And what happened is she attempted suicide and survived. And put out so many thank yous on social media to the people that supported her after she survived that suicide attempt, that she felt she had a whole new viewpoint on life, a whole new philosophy, a whole new arsenal of tools to fight suicidal ideation. If you saw those things, say, wow, this is fantastic. She's really came close to the abyss and stepped back And what happened? I think within four weeks later, she did attempt and succeed and she passed. So even though she attempted and people knew she attempted, people were shocked that she passed by suicide because of all of the statements she she was giving to her friends and loved ones showing that this would never happen again when... She could have been fighting it daily, not knowing what day that would happen. So for the survivors to think that the coulda, shoulda, woulda would have changed the outcome, I think it's, number one, not healthy. And number two, I think it's probably delusional because... Somebody that loses a loved one to suicide, and I've said this many, many times if you could have stopped it, you would have. You didn't because you can't. And, you know, Matt was 3,000 miles away, but we just saw him. He was here in Orlando, and I put him on the plane less than two weeks before he passed. And he was the happiest that I've seen him in his adult life. And I just told him how proud I was of him. And he told me that he finally learned that it's it's not what happens to you in life. It's how you handle it, how you cope with it. And as a parent, it's music to your ears because that's what we all have to do. You can't control what's going to happen to you. It's how you deal with the challenges of life. And Matt really dealt with the challenges in a very brave way and living a life of kindness and and purpose. And so when he passed, we were so shocked because every outward sign was that this was something that would never, ever, ever happen to him or to us, and it did. So whatever guilt, feelings of I should have done this, should have done that, that exists with people who have lost loved ones to suicide. I think over time, the ones that I've talked to have all realized it's a fallacy. You can't control that any more than you could control, as I've said this before, somebody with a, a glioblastoma brain tumor. And it's A glioblastoma brain tumor is a horrific brain cancer that medical technology doesn't have a cure for. And to think that, oh, my loved one, if they ever got it, I'd be able to control that so they won't pass away. It's fantasy thinking because John McCain passed from it. His family loved him. Ted Kennedy passed from it. His family loved him. I had a very good friend of mine Bob Felice, wonderful guy. His family loved him. He passed from it. So I think this is just a corollary of the same condition in the sense that whatever you want to call suicide, brain disease, chemical imbalance, whatever name you want to put on it is not the important thing. The important thing is that Medical science doesn't have a diagnostic tool to identify it, a treatment to help with the symptoms, or a cure to prevent it. So, given that, I think the guilt and the sense of, because with the guilt, the underlying premise is that I could control this. You can't. You never did. So your question
0: or your answer to that question raised two other questions for me. So you pointed out that on the day that Matt died, he had actually started a YouTube channel, brand new one with his own content. Yes. Which means he woke up that day never contemplating or thinking that was in the plan.
1: Right. He actually went to a movie that day also, because he saw pictures of it, and he was critiquing the movie. Matt was this incredibly sophisticated, incredibly intelligent, incredibly knowledgeable film expert, and he would dissect films like a biologist will dissect a molecule. It's just incredible the way he he did it. And it literally was that day. So I don't think he had any idea that he was not going to survive the day. It just wasn't on the radar screen until it was.
0: Wow. I guess I hadn't heard it explained that way before. The second question that your first answer gave me was those that had Attempt suicide, but survive. Obviously that there's going to be physical or emotional or psychological problems from based on how far or close they got to it, which could actually affect them the rest of their life. So from our standpoint, looking in, you're like, oh, that's awesome. They didn't. Now they got a new lease on life, but that's really not the way it works,
1: is it? It's like putting a Band-Aid on a raging infection. If you've got a raging infection, it's a bacterial infection, you're going to need an antibiotic to fight it. A Band-Aid, it may feel better because it's pushing it down or doing something with it, but it's not a cure. And I think, the whatever, again, whatever the disease process of suicide is, I don't know if a unsuccessful attempt alters the timeline of the the disease, it may delay it. It may change its progression for a while, but I don't think it cures it because I've talked to many people who've had loved ones perform multiple suicide attempts unsuccessfully and then eventually pass with a suicide that unfortunately succeeds. Wow.
0: So let's let's switch gears a little bit here. I've been since we had that first episode I've been reading and noticing articles on suicide, mental illness, depression. Um, there's a report in the Washington Post showing coronavirus pandemic is pushing America into a mental health crisis. Do you think that is absolutely
1: true? And where do you see that going? I think it is absolutely true. And I'll just answer this in two different ways. As, as you know, I have I've, I've, I've spoke of Dr. Lorna Breen, who was a ER yes. physician in New York City who was an incredible person. And during the worst of the worst of the worst of the pandemic in New York, she was literally obsessed with trying to save people. And apparently there was one time that she was distraught and they had to tell her, you know, you've got to take care of yourself. But I think somebody said that she was seeing people literally in the waiting room waiting to be seen that eventually died in the waiting room right. seeing a doctor because it was such a, a, a tsunami of cases. And it really, really adversely affected her. And she eventually was taken by a psychiatrist friend, and this is my understanding, reading the media reports, to her home in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, where she was admitted at the University of Virginia Medical Center with her, with her family. I think she was hospitalized for, for nine days and was discharged and then came home and took her life, which to me shows two things about the control thing. Obviously, that's an example of what I was talking about in the sense that she was in a wonderfully safe excellent university medical research center the university of virginia is one of the finest universities in the world a wonderful medical center and she was there obviously under observation and if they had known what would have what happened to her obviously they would have done something to do what they could do to prevent it and they didn't because they didn't see it or they couldn't stop it so the control thing to me just shows you how even experts in the medical field
0: can't can't control it,
1: can't control. That's number one. But number two is I think there's going to be two different things going on from the two different population bases. I think that the first-line responders and medical professionals that have dealt with the... Tsunami of cases and have seen such death on such a large scale. I've heard many of them give interviews saying that they believe that they have PTSD and they will be having PTSD, but they can't even deal with it now because they got to try to save lives. But after this is all over, because PTSD, as we know, is post traumatic stress disorder, so they're still in the middle of the trauma. So it's almost like pre-post, they haven't gotten there yet because it's still we're still in the trauma. The pandemic is still here. But once the dust settles, I think the long-term effect on the medical responders is going to be very, very profound. And the I know that the family of Lorna Breen, her father was a medical doctor, and her family set up a charitable fund specifically to fund mental health treatment for medical people, first responders, because they, more than anybody else, know how severe this can and probably will be for that population. So that's a subset that I think is truly going to be, unfortunately, dealing with the issue of suicide. In the larger societal picture, My fear is that younger people and older people are going to be at risk because older people, as we know, many times get lonely because they have lived a long life. Many of their loved ones, their friends are not around. They they don't have ability to socialize because of physical impairments or whatever. You add that now with the social distancing requirements and uh, inability to have human contact through the pandemic, I think that's going to have an adverse effect that could affect the suicide rate among older people. But the flip side of that coin is younger people, because younger people may not have the coping mechanisms to deal with such a catastrophic change in their lives in the sense that so many people at a young age, their friends, their social interactions take a much greater importance in their life than it should, including social media, how many likes she gets, and with no Human-to-human human contact, no touching, no hugging. That could be exacerbated because all they're going to be dealing with is what we're doing now, talking to machines. I see you, you see me. We are interacting, but not in the normal sense, the way humans have been interacting for thousands and thousands of years, saying hi to each other, being close to each other, shaking hands, patting each other the back, hugging. All that is prohibited now because the pandemic requires it. So, again, I don't know how that is going to affect, but I have seen studies just starting now how suicide rates this year are already higher than they were last year at the same time. And I think the third issue to be looked at, which is a medical issue, is that I know Dr. Breen's family thought that the virus attacked her brain and could have been a contributing factor in her suicide because they you know, because it's a novel coronavirus, it's a new virus. Medical science doesn't know exactly where and what part of the body is being attacked. So there are neurological issues dealing with this. And that could be another factor leading to increased suicides.
0: That was going to be my next question, because I had read some things. Her dad was a medical doctor as well. And he said she'd never been suicidal before, never thought about it. And he had that question. Could it have been a medical reaction from the virus itself? Right, Which is a whole nother ball game that, We have no data on to back up or history long enough out to see what the effects are going to be. Interesting. So I also read that there was another article. I think this one was on CNN and it was an episode on suicide. And they said there's a couple of reports that have been out saying that one in four young people between the ages of 18 and 24 have actually thought about and contemplating suicide since March of 2020. To me, that is, that's a scary number.
1: It's horrific. I, you know, so much of data and polling is what somebody's willing to tell you. So that's one fourth of the people contact who were willing to say, yes, I have suicidal ideation. How many people... Have suicidal ideation, but they're not going to tell the pollster. So that could be the floor, not the ceiling. Yeah. Which is even is, is even worse. And again, and how many of those people will actually act on that? To be determined. But that's not a good number.
0: No, it's certainly not a good number. You touched on something earlier talking about wondering if I should have seen signs or if I should have seen it coming, could I have prevented it? And you, you pretty much come out and said, absolutely not. They're going to go through with it. There's no way you could have seen it, contemplated it, known or changed it. What do you say to the survivors and the parents and the friends and the grandparents I mean, you and I have been in grief for a while and we know guilt can be a very big part of it. We worry about things that are completely out of our control and somehow you put yourself in the middle of it and say, wow, I should have known that or I could have prevented that if I just, and it's like, I think it's nonsense to take yourself there. But we all think about it at some point in our grief journey. What do you say to them as far as giving them hope, I know there are several Bible verses that I've found which talk about your days are numbered. They're numbered before you were born, not after you were born. And So as a parent, is it, is it even worth taking the time and effort to go there and think about that or as a brother or a sister? I mean, those are dark thoughts and it's a bad place to go and
1: dwell in. It is. And it's interesting you mentioned the Bible because, you know, being Jewish, I've spent my entire life going to holiday service for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year, Yom Kippur is a Day of Atonement. They're 10 days apart. And the prayer book, my entire life, I've read it. And I really am amazed how this resonates with me now that in the Jewish religion, at the beginning of the of the year it's stated that it's already written who shall live, who shall die, who shall be content, who shall have difficulties. It's already in the book. And again, the control that we think we have is an illusion and probably a, del- a delusion. Maybe it helps us sleep well at night. think we can control things when we can't. And If that helps people sleep, so be it. But the sense of, control again is such a difficult concept because I think all it's going to do is lead to guilt. And I think the thing that I decided to do was to make my emphasis at looking at what Matt did during his life, how he lived, not how he died, because After he passed away, we've been inundated with people calling us, texting us, emailing us, stopping by our house, telling us what a wonderful human being Matt was and how he positively affected their lives and changed their lives for the better. And he was on this planet for 32 years, and I think he knew he wasn't going to live a long life. And so he was going to make the most of his time here. And in the end of the day, none of us are here a long time. And isn't that the lesson that we all have to learn? We're all here a short time. You better make it a good time by making the place we live on this planet Earth better than it was when you before you came. And because of that, any guilt that I think a suicide survivor has should be looked at differently because the guilt, I think, is a offshoot of the control fallacy. And if you let go of the control fallacy, because at this point, you lost your loved one, you can't rewind the videotape and say, let's go and do a reshoot here. That's, that's not going to happen. So it's just negative emotion that's probably going to hurt you when you need to be Emotionally, physically, uh, and mentally as fit as you can be to deal with grief, number one. But also, number two, I don't think your loved one would want that to be done to hurt you. They, they were not doing anything to hurt their loved ones. It was just, again, whatever you want to call that illness, brain disease, whatever, chemical imbalance, whatever you want to call it, it was just the timeline of that disease process. And I think realizing that would help deal with any potential grief that somebody has and concentrating on the, the dash between the birth and the death of somebody is all that counts when you remember them. There's a saying in the Jewish religion May their memory be a blessing. And Matt's memory is a blessing because I was blessed to have him for 32 years as my son. He was a wonderful human being. He did incredible things for so many people during his time here. For that, I'm thankful. Do I wish he was here? Of course I do because he I loved him and he was one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. And I really miss Seeing him every day, and I miss his humor. He made me laugh every single day. But that doesn't change what I have in my heart. It doesn't change what I have in my memory. It doesn't change all the good work that he did. So I think my words of wisdom to somebody who lost a loved one when they passed by suicide is to, again, concentrate on the dash how they lived, not how they died.
0: Interesting comment. I think Dr. Hunter actually mentioned that during one of our uh, episodes with him. Let me ask another question. I found a document out on the CDC website, and it says they've created a package of info called Preventing Suicide, a technical package of policy programs and practices. So I've, I've glazed through it. I've I've looked at some of the different um, articles and stuff on it and they show a strategy and an approach for preventing suicide. And I think there's like seven items on the list. Is that even possible?
1: You know, again, I'll say again a little humor here. I'm not a doctor. and I don't play one on TV. I've got my own personal viewpoint about how The suicide prevention that medical science has done results in effective treatment. As a lawyer, I'm always very evidence-based, and the unfortunate statistics, the facts show that suicide is increasing at an alarming rate. So however you want to slice or dice it, excuse me, that's my dog barking. There's a, there's a thunderstorm approaching, so I apologize. However you want to slice and dice it, the numbers show that the suicide rate has increased regardless of what preventions or what treatments were done. So I think we have to look at it that hopefully medical technology will increase the effectiveness and the treatment modalities that can help people with suicide and help those that have lost loved ones of suicide to deal with the loss of a suicide loved one. But I think it's a work in progress to say the least because the numbers – Unfortunately, are increasing, not decreasing, which is never good for any disease process.
0: So, Marshall, let me ask a a last question today on this episode. So, we're dealing with a pandemic. We're dealing with isolation. We're dealing with something that can actually cause physical and mental issues. The virus itself. I mean, a lot of people are saying they've got blood clots in the brain and in the lungs. As a parent in the U.S. and you've got children that you're worried about, especially seeing the numbers one in four of that age group, 18 to 24, 25 could be contemplating it. What do you what do you tell them? What do you recommend?
1: What what can they do? You know, I think all you can do is your best in the sense that, you know, as a parent. Your number one job is to protect your children. And again, I think it's the illusion and the delusion of control. You know, I'll just tell you, my father was a complete realist and my mother wasn't. And my mother's mother was this tiny little woman who had a very powerful personality from Eastern Europe. And she used to tell my father that she hopes and prays and wants nothing bad to happen to her children, her children's children, and her children's children's children. And my father would just say that's, that's all good and well, but unfortunately, you can't control if something bad's going to happen to your children, your children's children, or your children's children. And my dad used to be sort of funny about that, but as I've been on the path of grief with Matt's passing, I realized my dad was right. And all you can do is do the best you can for what you think is best for your child. And obviously, get to a mental health professional if you think it's warranted if you think you got to call 911 call 911 the only alternative that you can really see that you can respond to if you think there's a crisis developing is medical intervention and is that a guarantee of course not as I just answered the Suicide numbers are increasing, and if medical technology, medical science had an answer for it, they'd be going down. They're not going down. The numbers are going up. That's just a fact. But it doesn't mean you don't try to get somebody the treatment that you think they need. So as a parent or as a child, if you see a parent yourself or a spouse or a sibling or a cousin or a friend or anybody, that you think is struggling with mental health issues in general or suicidal ideation in particular, get them to a mental health professional expert as soon as possible. Is that going to guarantee that there won't be further issues there won't be further problems or that there won't be a tragic situation that could unfold? Of course not, because it happens Every day, you know, the the number of veterans in the United States taking their lives, if I remember correctly, it's about one an hour. We've been doing this podcast for this episode about an hour now. Statistically, the probability is that somebody somewhere, some veteran in this country could have taken their life during this hour that we just did this episode and all of the medical technology that we're dealing with as one of the most, you know, sophisticated medical systems in the world is not bringing the suicide numbers down. They're going up, but you have to be very proactive and get medical mental health professionals involved as soon as possible if you think there's an issue that could result in suicidal ideation or suicide attempt
0: thank you for sharing that and i know as a dad who's lost his son i used to have the uh, i used to have the guilt because i felt as his dad i should have protected him and i should have kept him out of harm's way i should have known and you realize there's so many things out there you can't you can't keep track of all of them. Um, so where I actually thought I could protect my son, I found out the hard way I was wrong. I couldn't. So thank you for, for sharing that today. And I hope that helps some of the suicide survivors with the guilt that they carry because I, I don't think there's any way after you've lost a child that you could ever not realize you had no control to begin with. So, Marshall, I'd like to thank you for coming on today's episode and covering this very difficult topic. We've got some other things that we'd like to discuss in the future and just wanted to say thank you for joining us today. And Marshall, thanks
1: for for sharing your thoughts on the topic. Well, Steve, thank you so much for allowing me to talk again. It really helps me a lot. And you and I have been friends for uh, such a long time and we've been able to Uh, talk about our grief journey together and I really uh, always appreciate your friendship and your uh, willingness to listen and talk about issues that are part of the grief journey so uh, thank you for allowing me to talk today
0: thank you everyone have a good week
1: have a good week everybody stay well
0: thank you for joining us on Hope Through Grief with your co-hosts Marshall Adler and Steve
1: Smilski We hope our episode today was helpful and informative. Since we are not medical or mental health professionals, we cannot and will not provide any medical, psychological or mental health advice. Therefore, if you or anyone you know requires medical or mental health treatment, please contact a medical or mental health professional immediately.